So as you know, funny, I was obsessed with JYP's conversion, right? Um, I was just obsessed with that guy for a couple of four months, right? Um, and so I saw an interview clip with him recently, and um, he was, and he was interview, he was, you know, someone was interviewing him, and he wrote a book about you know his religious journey, religious awakening, if you will. And someone asked him why he wrote that book, and he says, "I wrote that book because I want to share my faith." And I want to, and he says, he, ha, he started on the journey to faith because he needed an answer about the question of death, right? This is what he said. He says, I think human life is, is like a three-part story. There is a beginning, there's a middle, and there's the end. Every human life has a beginning, middle, and the end. He says, our life here, our present existence in this life now is the middle part. If we don't know our beginning, which means where we come from, why we exist, if we don't know our beginning, if we don't know our end, if all we have is this middle, then our lives cannot possibly be balanced, right? To have a full balanced life, you need to know the beginning, the middle, and what will happen to you in the end. This comprehensive view of our existence gives meaning to our present life. He's so smart, that guy, right? I think it's true. We are living in the middle part of our existence. This time and space, it's the middle. We need to know where we come from. And we need to know where we're going to make sense of the middle. I'll give you an example. Um, one of the life-defining moments in, in my short life here, right? I'm almost I'm 50 this year. And one of the life-defining moments of my 50 years of existence, the, uh, the earliest part that I can remember, or not the earliest part, but one of the memorable parts of childhood that I can remember that had a profound influence on me was seeing the movie Empire, Empire Strikes Back, right? I saw it in May 1980 at Springfield Mall Movie Theater, right? That was, that was where, where it happened. Empire Strikes Back, as you know, is the, it's the second movie. I know Sean Stark would say, well, that's technically episode five, right? But Chronologically, when it came out, right, that's the second movie that came out in Star Wars, right? And it had a profound effect on me because a nine-year-old kid watching that movie, it, it was the first movie that it ended without a resolution. It began in a non-traditional way. There wasn't like a traditional beginning. The beginning is robots fall into the sky, and, it's, and it just action happens. And at the end of the movie, Darth Vader is Luke's father, was revealed. He got his hand chopped off. Han Solo is frozen, taken to Jabba the Hutt. It ends like that. There is no resolution in that movie. It was the first time in my life where I left the movie theater and going, what? What is this? There's no resolution. There's no happy ending. It just ended without any resolution. 
That's the first time in my life where I realized things cannot be resolved in this world. That's what JYP is trying to say. We're living in the Empire Strikes Back episode of our lives. Our lives don't make sense unless we know Star Wars and unless we know Return of the Jedi. The whole story doesn't make sense. Our story doesn't make sense until we know the end. Do you understand? What secularism is, what worldliness is, is focusing only on your life here. That's the definition of secularism, and that's the definition of worldliness. Because Pastor Wiedemann and I are almost the same age, we were raised in a generation where pastors define secularism as worldly entertainment, right? Don't listen to worldly music. Hotel California was devil's anthem, basically, right? Don't listen to worldly music. Don't listen to the Eagles or rock and roll, right? That's secular. That's dirty. But I think that's a very immature understanding of what secularism is. Secularism, worldliness, is solely the mindset that is solely concerned about your life here and have no regard for, for what the have no regard for the world to come. I got this from Mark Dever as I was listening to his sermon, right? The term secularism was made by this guy named, philosopher named George Holyoke. And his thing was, he, he defined secularism as morality should be based solely on mankind's well-being on this life. Right or wrong should not be, should not be based on any religious or ancient truth, but right or wrong should strictly be based on what is happening to the world today. George Holyoke is saying, right or wrong should be determined by what is happening in the world today and not by the ancient religious texts that came before it. This idea started to spread. And the idea of secularism, worldliness, is focusing only on the life that is here and now and have no regard for what is coming. Many churches... I think, are secular, not because they false, false, preach a false gospel, because they're helping their people to cope with what is happening right now and not letting them know about the world to come. Many churches focus on how their people should live now, helping with the problems that they're facing now, without telling them, pointing to them, of the eternal end that is coming. You can be Christian, I suppose, and secular at the same time. If all you're really concerned about is your life in this world, if you're only concerned about the middle and not the end. Paul teaches us today of what is to come in the end. What Paul is teaching us today is not just some theological exercise, but it should be in the background of every Christian's mindset as we live this world. 
The problem with secularism, the problem with worldliness, is that it doesn't really answer the eternal longings of our hearts. It doesn't, answer, it doesn't solve the problem of death. It doesn't solve anything. Only having the eternal perspective of things gives proper meaning to this life. Today, I'm going to talk about a lot of theology, and I'll, I'll try to simplify a lot of it. But I need your undivided attention. I see some of you are taking notes. That's fantastic, right? right? I urge you to try to take notes because it, it can get a little too heady sometimes, right? But I pray that you'll be with me. Okay? Here we go. Paul is talking about what is happening, to, what will happen to us in the end. But in verse 23, Paul teaches us what's going to happen to all Christians before the end of this world. Verse 23, but there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first, first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Little review of what, is, what we talked about last week. Christ is called the first fruit of salvation because it is, Paul is refer, referring to Christ's resurrection. First fruit of, 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 first fruit of the resurrection. Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection because just as he was raised from death to life, when he comes back, all who are in him will be raised to, all who have fallen asleep will be raised to life when he returns. And all Christians will have a resurrected body just as he had a resurrected body. That's what Christ means when he says he is, Christ is the firstborn, a first fruit of, of, of salvation, right? That, he, that just as he was raised and had a glorified body, all of us who are in Christ will be raised and will have glorified bodies in him. That's what it means. Paul gives a little bit more detail about what is going to happen when Christ comes in 1 first, in Thessalonians verses 4 to thir verses 13 to 17. First Thessalonians 4, Paul says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangels, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive, our left will be caught up together with them, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. What Paul is describing in 1 Thessalonians, he is telling the Thessalonians about what happens to the Christians who died before the Lord's coming. Paul is saying, when the Lord Jesus returns, those who have previously died, they will come with the Lord and their dead bodies will be raised, and they will have glorified bodies when Christ returns. 
those who are alive when Christ returns, will join Christ and those previous saints in the air and will be ushered into eternal glory. That's what Paul is saying. Before the end, those who are dead will rise and those who are living will rise and will be with the Lord for eternal glory. That is what is going to happen to all of us who are in Christ before the end. Are we clear? Yeah? If you have any questions, let Pastor Wujin know. He'll answer these questions for you. Okay? That is going to, that's the destiny of every Christian before the end. Verse 24, Paul says, Then comes the end. After the Christians are be, be with the Lord, then comes the end. What happens in the end? when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. What you need to understand about what's going to happen in the end is this. The end is a reversal, right? The end is a reversal of what, a reversal of what, what Adam did and the consequences of Adam's fall. When Christ comes to defeat all God's enemy, he is doing it to reverse the curse that Adam has made. Right? Verses 21 to 20 and 21, last, 21 and 23 last week, we talked about how death entered through one man, Adam, and how life entered through another man, Jesus. That Jesus has come to reverse what Adam has done regarding death. In the final days, when God destroys all his enemies, and when Jesus destroys all of God's enemies, he's going to undo what Adam's sin has done. That's the thing that you need to understand, right? To have in mind. So that's the main theme of what's going to happen. For example, just that it is sin and chaos, right, that Adam caused, and that's the reality of the world. Life and order will be restored at the end because Christ will reverse what Adam has done. That's the main theme of Paul's argument in these verses. Let's go to verse 24 again. Then in the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. After the Christians are be with the Lord, Christ will reign on this earth for a thousand years. That's called the millennia. And during the millennia, Jesus will destroy all of God's enemies. Who are the enemies of God that Paul talks about in verse 24? They can be human beings, human rulers, human influencers, right? human politicians, human kings, human governors, human congressmen, human, human dictators, whoever it is. They are these can be humans, right? These can be human beings who are the enemies of God. But a more plausible explanation of what Paul's talking about here, these rulers and powers, right? These um, 
ruler, every rule, every authority, every power also has to do with Satan and his demonic forces. Satan and his forces are present in the world and they are also the enemies of God. So the enemies of God in this world are, are human beings and also Satan and his demonic forces. And in the end times, Jesus will come and he will destroy every single one of them. Let's talk about the enemies of God and what makes them God's enemies. All the enemies of God, whether they be Satan and his forces or human authorities, they, have, they share a common vision. And that vision is to ignore God's authority and destroy the created order that God has made. That's a common vision. Whether it is a human authority, whether it is a human like movie executive in Hollywood, or intellectual at Harvard, right? Or whether it is Satan and, and his demonic forces, all they have they have a common vision, and that is to deny God's authority and try to destroy God's created order to make their own kingdoms in this world. That's the common vision. One of the economists that influences me a lot, that influenced me considerably in the last year, economist named Thomas Sowell, and he's Stanford economics, he's, he's an econ economic professor at Stanford. He's a conservative economist, and he wrote a lot of books. I think he writes a book a year. And his, in, in his book called The Vision of the Anointed, he says that this country is influenced by the elites who try to push their vision of the world onto America. He says these elites, right, whether it be in academia or in government, have a worldview that is not based on fact, that is not based on data, that is not based on empirical evidence. There is no evidence to back up their claim, right? But, even, but they still have this worldview and even though their worldview is not supported by anything, their worldview is used to make up policies and practices. And these policies and practices has huge impact on American economy, American communities, American life. He says a lot of the problems of the last 20th century in America it's because of these visions made up by, these, by the elites who just know their vision and have no idea of reality. People's visions, he says, are destroying America. Perhaps he's over-exaggerating. But that's a similar idea that Paul is having. There is a vision that the enemies of God have. And that vision... He's saying, God is not the creator of all things. Deny God's authority. Live the way you want to live. Isn't that the truth? How many dumb Disney movies do you see with the theme, follow your heart? That is really saying, deny all authority, deny all reality, be true to what you feel. That is a statement of authority. 
someone asks me why I don't sign up for Disney Plus, it's because I hate that, that message in every Disney movie. I can't, I don't want to pay for it. That's Satan's vision, isn't it? That's what made Satan Satan. Did you know? Satan became Satan because he didn't want to recognize God's authority. Remember when he was tempting Jesus on Matthew chapter 6? He wanted Jesus to bow down to him. Remember the second temptation? If you bow before me, I will give you the kingdoms of the world, Satan says to Jesus. Satan doesn't recognize God's authority. He wants, he wants to just kick God out of reality and make his own kingdom. That's how he tempted Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The nucleus of his temptation is, you don't need God. If you eat from that tree, you don't need him anymore. You can, make decide, you can decide for yourself what right or wrong is. It is that secret usurping of God's authority. Saying, do not recognize God for his authority. Do not recognize the authority of God in your life. Adam and Eve, may choose right or wrong for yourself. And Adam and Eve agreed to that vision. And as a result, death came. The vision of the enemies of God, whether they be human or demons, do not recognize God's authority and do not do what he said. How do you know that you don't recognize God's authority? You don't do what he says. Adam and Eve did not do what God said they should do because in their minds, they no longer recognize God's authority. They ate from that tree because they decided that they don't want to recognize God's authority anymore. And they did what God told them not to do. How do you know that we're sinners? We don't, we don't recognize God's, God's authority and we don't do what he says we ought to do. Right? That's how he tempts modern churches, by the way. Do you know that? He makes modern churches into a place where you talk about the love of God all the time, but never about the authority of God. Churches don't want to offend people to move away from people, so they don't really peddle right and wrong anymore. They talk about political issues. They talk about, I don't know, like Jesus being your best friend, being your counselor, love overflowing, all these things, but not the authority of God, and certainly do not teach people that God expects them to obey. Because people do not want to be told what to do. I don't, want you to, I don't want to make us legalists. But let's be real here. The way we know clearly that we don't recognize his authority is if we don't do what he says we ought to do. How do you know your kids are not listening, that, that your kids do not recognize your authority? They don't obey you, right? That is what the enemies of God that's the common vision of the enemies of God. What is the result of not recognizing God's authority and not doing what he says we ought to do? 
reality becomes fractured. Everything that God created, the order in which God created, and the things that God created, they become fractured. Like one of the pastors that I listened to said, it's like when we do not recognize God's authority and do what he says, it's like we put a grenade. We threw a grenade in creation and we blew up creation. And there is, everything is scattered, everything is disjointed, everything is fractured. Because of Adam's sin, Genesis chapter 3, verse, what is it, verse 17, because Adam sinned, the, the ground is cursed. There are, there are floods, there are, um, what's the opposite of flood? Droughts? The creation, the ground is cursed because of Adam's sin. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, he says, creation suffers because of our sin. Because of our sins, the ground is cursed. All the creation is fractured and disordered, disorganized and in chaos because of sin. Because we don't recognize God's authority. Because we don't recognize God's authority, our interpersonal relationships are disorderly, chaotic, satisfying, depressing, divisive. For example, what is God's command? God's command is summarized in the Ten Commandments. right? We don't want to do the Ten Commandments. What happens when we don't want to do the Ten Commandments? Our relationships, our place in the world becomes chaos and divisive and depressing, right? For example, God says, I am the Lord your God, worship me only. You say, nope. When you say no, you worship other things. You worship created things. You worship dead things. You worship dead things. And the the dead things that you worship cannot possibly give you what you hope to have. Right? God says, honor your parents. Recognize that your kids, children, recognize that your parents are the authority figures that God has placed you in your life, and you are called to honor them. Kids go, nope. I don't want to recognize my, my parents' authority over me. Ever since they're babies, they want to rebel against us. You, know, you remember? Remember parents when your babies were little? It's hard taking care of the kid because they don't want to listen to you. They all, they, ever since they're a little baby, they want to rebel, right? They cry, cry, cry when they, when they don't get their way, right? They, like, like it, it, and it's, ever since they're little, there's a desire not to listen to parents. God says, do not hate people. Love people. Do not hate them. Do not commit physical or spiritual or character murder. Don't do it. That's what the sixth commandment is, right? Don't murder people. Don't hate them. Either in words or in character or spiritually, physically, whatever. Don't kill people. We say, no, I'm going to do that. I'm going to treat people as I wish. I'm going to insult them. I'm going to use words to just demoralize them. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to love them or respect them. I'm going to do what I want to do. God says, do not use people. Do not lust after them. Do not treat them as commodities to consume and discard them. Don't do it. Don't lust. Not lusting is, do not use people as products to consume and discard. Don't do it. We say, no, we're going to do it. Don't tell the truth. Don't lie to people. People go, no, I'm going to lie. Don't envy people. Respect what God has given each individual. And don't envy them. You go, no, I'm going to hate them if they have a life that I want and I don't have. 
Don't be greedy. Be content with what God has given you. Know that everything that you have, God has given you. And do not consume with greed. No, I'm always going to strive for the thing that I don't have. No, that's not going to spend my, the rest of my life wanting more stuff. Can't you see? Not living in accordance to God. The underlying problem with all our lives, like the conflicts, is because we're not listening to what God has told us to do. Every relationship is, is, is fractured because of this. Because we don't recognize God's authority, we don't. And we do what we want to do. Our relationships suffer. I counsel a lot of people. And when you're counseling people who are just fighting and in misery, all of it, because we refuse to recognize God's authority and do what he says. I was listening to a Christian apologist debating an unbeliever, an atheist. And the atheist asks the Christian, hey, Christian, you say sin is evil, right? And Christian says, yeah. And the atheist says, then what is wrong with sin? You say it's evil. But tell me, what is exactly wrong with sin? The, the Christian goes, oh, well, you're disobeying God's command. Okay, what's wrong with disobeying God's command? What's wrong with not living the way God wants you to live? What is wrong, Christian? Why do I have to live the way God wants me to Why do I have to live the way God wants me to live? Why? And the Christian could not answer that question. He could not answer why, why sin is bad. Sin is bad because it destroys human beings. It destroys the world when we don't recognize God's authority. The enemies of God have a vision, and their vision is causing destruction to the created order of things. Therefore, Christ will come and destroy every rule, every authority, every power. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The term put his enemies under his feet. The picture, the traditional picture is a conquering king takes the enemies that he conquers, right? After he conquers the enemies, he takes his foot and he puts them on the enemy king's neck, right? So the conquering king, the defeated king, the conquering king puts his, put his feet on the neck of the defeater, defeated one to show that I overpower you, I rule over you. Verse 25 says, every enemy of God whether they be at atheist Harvard professors, or whether they be at corrupt Hollywood producers, or whether it be at Satan himself, Christ would put everyone under his feet. Revelations verse 20, verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophets are, and shall be tormented forever and ever. Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 10 says. 
And everyone who listened to him, everyone who followed them, every enemy of God will too be thrown to the lake of fire where they will be tormented eternally forever and ever. Christ will defeat every human being, every spiritual force that is the enemy, who are the enemies of God. Do you understand? That is what's going to happen. He's going to purify the earth by destroying all of God's enemies. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Remember, death came into the world through the temptation of Satan and man's adherence to the, that temptation. Satan says, do not recognize God's authority, do what you want. Man says, okay. And they followed, and death resulted. Those enemies of God, Satan and man, will be destroyed in the lake of fire. And the last enemy is the result is is death, the fruit of Satan and and, and, and man's disobedience to God. God will destroy death. Revelations chapter twenty, verse fourteen, verse fourteen. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death that caused so much misery to every human being that has ever lived. Death that is causing misery to some of us here this morning. That death be defeated by the lake of fire. That's the end, right? How does Jesus do it? What is, how is, is Jesus able to defeat all the enemies of God in, 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 the, in the, a thousand years of reign that he will do in this world? Verse 27, for he has put everything under his feet. For he, he means God, has put everything under his, Jesus' feet. Jesus is able to defeat all the enemies of God. Because God the Father has given God the Son the authority to, to de destroy all the enemy. And the Son of God, Jesus, takes that authority, obeys, and destroys God's enemies. This is different from what has given to Adam, right? God has given Adam the authority to rule over the earth, right? Remember Genesis chapter 1? I think it's verse 26. God has given Adam the authority to rule over this earth. Adam, rather than obeying this, he rebels against God. As a result of his rebellion, the earth is cursed. God gives Jesus the same authority. But rather than rebelling, he obeys. And because he obeys the chaos and the destruction and the disaster that Adam has caused, God restores the earth because of his obedience. John chapter 8, verse 28, 29, Jesus says, I do nothing on my own accord, but speak just what my Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. 
if it is the disobedience of Adam that caused death and destruction, it is the obedience of Christ that, is, that, will, that will usher in life and order into this world. You see the theme? Christ is undoing what Adam has done. If Adam's rebellion has caused death and, death and destruction, Jesus' obedience is causing life and restoration. Verse 28, when he has done this, meaning when Jesus has done, defeated all of God's enemies, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him. After Jesus destroys all of God's enemies and purifies the earth, what is, what is the Bible, what is Paul says Jesus will do? He will submit to the Father. He will give the kingdom to the Father and he will submit to the Father. Isn't that amazing? Why? Once again, created order. In the tri triune God, there is order in the triune God. The Son, even though he's the same essence as God the Father, submits to God the Father out of his own will. After God, Jesus purifies the earth, he will submit himself and the earth under God's, under God's God the Father's authority. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1, verse 15, he says, Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. The term firstborn of all creation, it doesn't mean that Jesus was created. It doesn't mean that. Mormons use this verse to say Jesus was created. It doesn't mean that. The term firstborn signifies supremacy, right? The preeminence, the supremacy. When, when Paul says Jesus Christ is the firstborn of creation, he's saying Jesus Christ is the supreme. He is, a, he is he, every, all creation belongs to him. That's what it basically means. And when Jesus submits himself to the Father, he will submit all of creation under the, Father's, under the Father. And when all creation is submitted under the Father, things are restored back into, the, back into order again. Sin has caused chaos and disorder into this existence. But when Jesus purifies the earth, submits everything under, under to God the Father, order is restored in the universe. Adam sinned, chaos of creation ensued, Jesus Christ obeys, therefore order is restored. I told you it was going to get theological. Do you understand what, what, what we're trying to do? Jesus is reversing what Adam has done. And in the end of time, everything that was destroyed and everything that was fractured and everything that was divided will become whole again will become orderly again. Verse 28. That God may be all in all. What Paul means is this. When Christ puts everything under God's feet, when order is, order is restored, everyone will know that all creation belongs to God. It will be evident that God created Things, that God sustains all things. It will be evident to all that all, that all reality belongs to God. He controls this reality. It will be made evident to all. 
Right now, people have no idea that God isn't all in all. People are blind. People are ignorant to this, to this reality. But when Jesus Christ restores order, it will be evident that God created all things and he sustains all things. Remember, sin is not recognizing the authority of God. Sin is not recognizing that God isn't all in all. Right? That's what sin is. Sin is... I don't care who created the world. I don't care what's, what's truth. I don't care what's reality. All I care is about my feelings. When order is restored, we will see that God is the God, is the God of authority, that everything revolves around him. At the end, that will be made plain. At the end, what's going to happen in the end? All the enemies will be destroyed things will become in order again and God will be glorified. That's the end. Our existence is it's chaotic right now because we don't recognize God's authority. right? And therefore, everything is chaotic and disorderly. But in the end, all of that will go away. Restoration, order, and glory will, will fill the earth. That's going to happen in the end. That's going to what happened to the end of all of us. That's the end. Applications. I have two minutes to do applications. Number one, know that this world is the middle. I know a lot of you, especially young people, are just really concerned about what's going to happen to you in this world. But no, this is the middle. Yes, God's going to help you. God's going to lead you in the middle. He will. He's going to sanctify you, save you in the middle and sanctify you in the middle. And that's all good and true. But this place is not the end for you. The middle cannot possibly give you what you think you want. Maybe you have this idea in your head. If you realize your dreams in this life, then you'll be fulfilled or whatever. But that's simply not true. That, that really, that, that, that's not true. Everyone dies incomplete. Many people that I know are, about, are dying. I know that I that passed away. No one dies saying, I fulfilled my dreams. I've accomplished all things. I did it my way and die, die fulfilled. No one dies like that. Everyone dies unfulfilled. Everyone dies with things unresolved. Everyone dies wishing they had more time to do things. Everyone dies unfulfilled because this world is the middle. I know you want to focus on what's going to happen to you now. And that seems to be the over-consuming desire of your heart. But know that simply, but know that, that, that whatever desire that you have, the fulfill, fulfillment of it, the realization of it, cannot possibly give you what you are looking for. Because this place is just the middle. 
having Christian joy, like I said last week, it's not when God answers your prayers for the things of this life. That's not where Christian joy comes from. Christian joy comes when the end becomes a reality to you. When what Paul describes, when that becomes a true reality, that, that when that becomes what you, what, what you really happen to you, that's when Christian joy comes. comes. Do you understand? Second application. They are the enemies of God. They are. It's Netflix, Disney, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, right? All of it are just instruments of this constant messaging that the enemies of God is trying to tell us, right? They all tell us, don't recognize God's authority. Don't recognize God's authority. Recognize our authority. Recognize what we tell you is the truth. And your heart, your, 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 heart, your, your heart is very deceptive. My heart is very deceptive. Rather than recognizing God's authority, we want to listen to the world when they tell us what, what we want to listen to the world's authority and not God's. That's, he, that's how he attacks you. The enemies of God are constantly attacking the people of God. And the way they attack you, they don't attack you with monsters. They attack you with lies. Look, yesterday last night I was praying for the sermon. I'm going to, go, I'm to get all weird on you. I was praying, right, like at like 1 o'clock in the morning. And I felt demonic presence as I was praying. I, I rarely feel it, but I had chills right? I felt dark forces around me. Maybe I'm going crazy, but I don't think so. But I realize he doesn't attack most of us like that. The enemies of God attacks us through messaging, through lies. Messaging in your head saying, you know, rest, take it easy, Right? All these things are just used to tell you, don't recognize God in your life. It's war, Paul says in Ephesians 6. You must fight against the attack of the enemy. You fight his lies with the truth. You fight his lies with the truth, Right? So fight this week. And the last application. What is the last application that I wrote? Know that the perfect world is coming. That's beginning to the first application. Know that at the, the end of your life, rest assured that the end of your life, if you're a Christian, is perfection. The end of your middle in this world, the end of your life in this middle is incompletion. You'll feel like how I felt when I watched The Empire Strikes Back. Incomplete, unfulfilled. Everyone dies like that here, right in the middle. But no, the perfection is coming after this world. And hope in that world. Despite the amazing clock, I have used up all my time. Let us pray for these things.
Dear God, we are living in the middle When we die here, Lord, we will die in the middle. What Peter says is that we are strangers to this world. We're just travelers in this world, and it's true. Because our home is in the eternal glory that Christ will will make for us. Father, we confess of our secularism. We confess of our worldliness. We confess of being too focused on the matters of this life. What kind of job we have, who we marry, you know, what kind of homes that we have. These things, as good as they are, seems to be what our lives are about. That's not true. Our lives are about what will happen to us after this life. Lord, help us not to be secular. Help us not to just define ourselves by our position and whatever happens to us in this world. But help us to have an eternal perspective. Help us have hope in the end and not hope in the middle. Lord, if some of us are, are, maybe some of us are enemies of God. Maybe, Lord, some of us, Lord, are are still under the impression that it is my vision, it is my desire that should, should rule my life and not you. If that is some of us, we pray that you reveal that we are currently your enemies and not your sons. Father, help us have a proper perspective on, of, about who we are rather than thinking that we're yours because of where we're affiliated with. Help us have a deep look into our lives and and see whether we are recognizing your authority in our lives. If we are more in agreement with your enemies than you, I pray may the same grace that you have shown all those who are saved be extended to them so that the enemies of God will become sons of God. We pray that you will extend that mercy upon them. For those of us, Lord, who are struggling with various things, maybe there's some of us with ailing parents. Some of us have parents who are undergoing tremendous trials. And I know, Lord, that the only encouragement that our our suffering parents can have is the eternal hope of the eternal end. May you give salvation to to our suffering parents. May you give them the proper perspective of the end to our suffering parents so that that their present suffering, they will have proper perspective. We pray, Lord, that may this church be a church that, that hopes in the kingdom to come and not so much be carried away by the whims of this earth. We pray that you'll build your kingdom inside all of us. All these things, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now let us...